Hello, church. It's great to be a part of the broader family of God here in the Portland metro area. Uh, today, our teaching is going to come from a friend of ours, Brian Fowler. Some of you know him. Some of you have yet to meet. Brian is one of the pastors at Westside of Jesus Church, the church that planted us. And he's a dear friend. And this guy knows the Bible well. We've been planning to have him live this summer. I was so excited for you to meet him face to face, but because of the obvious COVID situation, he's going to share the word by video. So please give a warm welcome from your home or your computer to Brian Fowler. And a happy Sunday 26 West. As Jose mentioned, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors at Westside. And Jose and I have been talking about me coming to visit and share the scriptures with you for a while now. Uh, but we were talking in once upon a time when people used to get together in person and drink coffee, hug each other, sing songs out loud and study the Bible together. But now in this COVID world, uh, I am here via camera, but really glad to be able to join with you this way. Um, a little bit about me uh, as we get started. I'll share the better sides of me uh, first. Um, I have been following Jesus for 25 years. Uh, and so I got saved when I was 17 years old, a, a junior in high school, and uh, been married for almost 22 years to my wonderful wife, Shannon, and uh, am the proud father of four great kids, Silas, Annika, Tobias, and Justice, and they are 19, 18, 15, and 13. And you did hear that right and do the math. I have four teenagers living at home during a time of quarantine. I appreciate your prayers uh, on that. So just glad to be here to share the scriptures with you. Um, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. Uh, started off as a high school youth pastor at my church uh, back in the day when uh, I was still wide-eyed and naive, <laughs> when my only job was to teach the Bible to uh, teenagers and have fun. Uh, and then I started working with adults and no one told me how complicated my job could become once I started doing that. So uh, glad to be here to get into your uh, The Way of Jesus series. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. So if you have a Bible or a device or however you are accessing scripture, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. And my assignment is verses 1 through 4. And if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 6, you know that Jesus in this passage is going to deal with three basic spiritual disciplines. The spiritual discipline of giving, which we're going to talk about this morning. The spiritual discipline of prayer and the spiritual discipline, everybody's favorite, fasting. I'm glad I did not draw that straw. So Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. And I am in the NIV 2011 translation. If that's not the one that you read out of, um, then uh, you'll know why we sound so differently. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus' words, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites, do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their, received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Amen to the word of God. So we need a little bit of historical context here in the 
first century audience in Judaism that Jesus Christ is addressing here in this talk. Um, now this sermon, again, is directed at three required practices of piety for ancient Judaism. And again, those are giving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus addresses the, the focus on this giving practice this morning. Um, and in Jesus' day, in Judaism, the ancient Jews actually had a very um, expected giving practice. That is, it wasn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when you gave alms. Giving of alms was considered to be part of the righteous, pious life of any follower of Yahweh in that day. Unlike our day where we're constantly talking to people about the need to give, in Jesus' day, it wasn't assumed that you would give to the poor. And actually, Throughout the Torah and the prophets, um, God tells his people, Israel, frequently that they need to be generous to the poor. One great passage where God talks about open-handed living and giving is in Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'll read that for us. You might want to turn there or if you're a note-taking type of person, jot down Deuteronomy 15. But listen to this as we hear the heart of God toward generosity and giving. If anyone, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, if any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. I like that. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do show no ill toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They then may appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Now, God commands his people to open-handed living in verses 7 through 11. And, and in Yahweh's economic ethics, there is this call to Israel, ancient Israel, to be a giving people. And did you notice maybe in this passage that the seventh year is referred to, which was also called the Sabbath year. And in the Sabbath year, every debt was canceled. And God warned his people I don't know if you noticed that when we were reading the text, God warns his people that there will be a temptation when you come to a Sabbath year or the year right before the Sabbath year to actually start becoming greedy and saying, oh, it's a Sabbath year. I don't want to lend to the poor or give to the poor because I won't get back that, that which I've loaned. And God says, that's evil. Don't do that. Because if you do that, verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 9, the, the poor person will appeal to the Lord and he will then punish you for your greed. And throughout this economic ethic of God in the Old Testament, there's several places where God calls us, calls his people to radical generosity. Um, one practice was in Leviticus chapter 19, this practice of the gleaning practice. So basically the gleaning practice was for those wealthy farmers or affluent farmers or anyone who was just you know, being blessed in their crops, you were, when you harvested, you were not to harvest the corner of your crop because the corners were to be left for the widow, for the impoverished and poor person and for the stranger and the foreigner in the land. 
the gleaning practice. But then there's also um, later on in Leviticus chapter 25, the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. And on the 50th year, all debts were canceled. All indentured servants were set free from their servitude and all land was given back to the family that previously had it. So everybody got everything back. And then as we looked at in Deuteronomy 15, it's also mentioned in Leviticus 25, which is this practice of the seventh year, the Sabbath year, where all debts were canceled, which ensured then in Israel that no one would be shackled for a lifetime with crippling debt. Wouldn't that be a beautiful practice in the United States if we were to practice this kind of economics, this kind of ethic? This was Yahweh's ethic for his people. And so God commands equity and generosity toward the poor. And by the time of Jesus, the synagogue actually had established a system of relief for the poor. There was actually a specific tithe. It was called the tithe for the poor that ensured that the people who were devout in Israel would give toward the poor, this offering for the poor. So this practice of almsgiving in Jesus' day, as talked about in Matthew chapter six, was an implied giving. Notice uh, in, in Matthew chapter six, verse two, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, it's implied, not if, it's when you give to the needy. So when we look at this passage, what we're not talking about is Jesus asking us to be generous. The implication is you will be generous. What this passage is talking about is the kind of mindset you have when you're generous, when you do your good works of giving and prayer and fasting, those three spiritual practices that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter six, verses one through 18. Um, so Jesus says, these are the two things really that you need to be aware of. If you're doing what you do, you're giving in this instance, to be admired or noticed by people, Jesus will use this refrain multiple times, you've received your reward in full. If you're the kind of person that's looking to be noticed, being noticed by people, that's the full reward. But then he juxtaposes that truth by saying, if you're doing what you do, whether that be, as mentioned, the three spiritual practices of Judaism, the acts of piety, giving, prayer, and fasting. If you do these things in secret, to be seen only by your father, then your father which sees in secret will reward you in the open or reward you for what you have done. So at the heart of the matter and what Jesus is saying is our desire to be seen and admired for the good we are doing is sinful, is wrong. And it's an issue that lurks in the shadow of the human heart. We all have this desire and need to be noticed and admired. When I was 19 years old, I was hired by my church uh, down in Southern Oregon to be the high school youth pastor. And one of the noted things about this particular church that I was working for was that um, they were known for taking chances on young people. And so uh, going on staff at a church like this, I was allowed to do things that probably in any other church context, I would not have been given the permission to do. Like I was performing weddings and premarital counseling and funerals and hospital visits and counseling, just probably a place I didn't belong in, but I was too naive and flattered by given these opportunities. We just kept quoting 1 Timothy 4.12, let no man despise your youth. But I remember there was this one moment where at 19 years old, my pastor gave me the opportunity to do kind of one of the biggest things I'd ever done as far as public ministry. And that is, I was going to get to teach in front of the whole church at our Sunday evening gathering, which is at that time a pretty large gathering. 
And uh, so, you know, I'm 19 years old. I get up there and I'm, I'm not even sure what kind of heresy I spit. <laughs> Who knows? Probably had to be corrected. But I remember afterwards, something really strange, a strange feeling happened because everybody was so kind and nice to me afterwards that I sort of enjoyed being noticed. I enjoyed being able to get up in front and teach the Bible. And, and, and then two years later, two years after this big moment in my life, the church that we were going to sent my wife and I off to plant a church. And any of you who know anything about church planting, especially from scratch, like we had no core team. It was just my wife and I showing up in a town, trying to start a church in a living room. And for like the first year, it's like 20 people in a living room. And I was so discouraged by that. And I have to ask myself, why was I so discouraged? And I think part of it was, is that lurking in the shadow side of my soul was a desire to be seen and admired for doing something great. And 20 people in a living room isn't exactly like, you know, a, a, a room full of people listening to you teach the word of God. And, and that's really what Jesus is getting at is that it's about the unseen life, the life that doesn't need to be seen or admired or noticed by others to find their approval. And, you know, living in a culture so obsessed with image, I mean, Instagram and Facebook and all social media outlets and TikTok and Snapchat, where, where we're putting forth images of who we are, the way of Jesus is a different way, uh, not a way of appearing good rather than being good, but rather this genuine heart to do good. And that's what Jesus is asking for. But if we're not careful as disciples of Jesus, we can get trapped in these shallow forms of spirituality a spirituality that is image over substance. Like as I mentioned uh, maybe before, um, my family and I, uh, about six years ago, were uh, pastoring a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a great experience. We recently relocated back to the Northwest, but for five years we were over in the South and preaching and teaching and leading a church uh, called Emmaus, wonderful opportunity for me and my family. But one of the things that we loved about North Carolina was their state motto. Uh, and, and the Latin phrase for the state motto of Raleigh, North Carolina, or North Carolina as the state, um, is this Latin phrase, esse quam videri. Esse quam videri, which is to be rather than to seem. And that's really the heart of what Jesus is saying, to be rather than to seem, to, to, to experience freedom from the addiction of human approval. Now to the crowd of primarily Jewish men and women that Jesus is addressing, he says to them, when it comes to your spiritual practice of giving to the poor, again, verse one, don't do this to be seen by others because if you do, you will have your reward and you get no reward from your father in heaven. So there's really no way around this. Seeking approval from men will do you no good in the heavenly realms. Um, and the example that Jesus gives is interesting in verse 2. Notice what he says about the wrong way to give. He says, when you give to the needy, verse 2, do not announce it with trumpets. Now there's a couple of thoughts about what this actually could mean. One scholar actually says in the East, there was a practice among a group of beggars that used to beg and they would keep near them at all times a horn, a ram's horn or some form of horn so that when a person, an almsgiver would donate to this poor beggar, they would then blow a trumpet to announce this person has given to me and everyone in the community and around would look up and notice that this act of generosity had been done. And there were a group of hypocrites who were actually 
specifically only going to give to those beggars that had a trumpet. So Jesus said, when you give, don't give in a way that when you give a trumpet is blasted. Another scholar said that it it probably is most likely this. In the temple treasury, they had a a box, an offering alms box, which they called a trumpet. Uh, Primarily because it was shaped like a trumpet. It was wide at the mouth and then it narrowed down as it got near the bottom. And, And whenever you would drop coins or your offering in, it would make this loud tinging, clinging sound like, you know, dropping coins in there, ding, 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 you know, or whatever sound that might be metal hitting metal. And so everyone would know, oh, look at that person. They just dropped a bunch of bling inside of the trumpet, the almsgiving box. And Jesus said, hey, don't give that way. I was thinking of this sort of in our modern day. It would be like if, you know, when people are back together again, if our offering felt like the Salvation Army holiday booths, you know, at the grocery store, that there's someone there ringing the bell every time you give. So, you know, maybe Jose, you want to start practicing that, just have someone ringing a bell every time someone gives an offering, might increase donations. Um, And so the idea here is that Jesus is saying, don't make a scene when you give, don't sound a trumpet so that others will notice what you're doing. Um, Because if you do, again, you're good to be seen and affirmed by people, That is all the reward you're going to get. That momentary applause, that affirmation, that pat on the back, it won't last for eternity and it's all you get. But if you are someone with a kingdom mindset and your value system is completely other and it's kingdom-minded, kingdom-minded men and women seek to do things on earth that are God-glorifying and eternal. And this is how Jesus talks about the kingdom mindset as it concerns generosity. In verse three and four, again, notice Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So what does it mean to give in such a way that one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing? Well, obviously this isn't literal. Jesus is using a metaphor of of giving in such a way that it's not noted, that it's not seen publicly. Actually, Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, words this verse this way. He says, when you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Uh, One Bible commentator, R. Kent Hughes, actually suggests that this passage actually could possibly mean something like this. When we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, he compares it to an athlete or a musician, someone who's coordinated themselves to play a sport, you know, with the tennis racket or a baseball bat or a football or a basketball and dribbling or a musician with a guitar or a piano or drums. At some point when you become well-trained in whatever, whether it's athleticism or music, you're so, it's so ingrained in you that your right hand literally doesn't know what your left hand is doing because you're not really thinking about it. You're just doing what you've been trained to do. And so the idea of authentic kingdom giving is that we would do it like second nature, that, that it would be like a moral muscle that's just worked into us that we don't overthink our giving or try to get attention from it, but we just do it because it's the right thing that Jesus has called us to do. And this kind of generosity, the kind of generosity that doesn't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, the kind of generosity that says, this is for God and for anyone I'm helping alone. This isn't to be noticed or approved of by people. Jesus says, this kind of giving 
your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now think about this for just a moment. Just this phrase, your father sees what is done in secret. Somebody has put it this way as it concerns the secret life. Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Because you know, as Jesus said, the father knows what is being done in secret. And Jesus, when he talked about people who live without integrity, people who do things to be seen, he, he called them hypocrites in verse 2. Now, a hypocrite in Jesus' day, the hypocrites, they were actually actors in the Greek theater. And they would wear these big masks. They were actually overstated masks, the big smiles or big frowns or big expressions on these masks that they would wear while they were performing on a stage. They were so big and overstated so that anyone in the Greek theater could see from the back the expression that was being made on the face. And, and this is where we actually get our concept of someone who is two-faced. They've got one face for the stage and one face for public life. One face in public, one face in private. Or in our vernacular, it might be one persona on Sunday morning when we used to get together on Sunday mornings back in the day. Or another persona Monday morning at work when they're not wearing their, their, their masks to be seen as pious. And so Jesus talks about people who live unintegrated lives being two-faced, behaving one way in public and another way in private. That's not integrity. But the opposite of a hypocrite's life is an authentic life, a life that's honest and open before God and people. And in the case of our giving and all the spiritual practices referred to in Matthew chapter 6, we see that the hypocrite appears pious by seeking others' approval for their good deeds. But the authentic life seeks the Father's approval and lives with integrity in the secret life and the public life. There's full integration. But of all the things, as we draw to a close, that could be said about the authenticity of the life that's lived in generosity or prayer or fasting, as we'll get into in the next couple of weeks, of all the things that could be said, I, I want to notice... Verse four, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Jesus says this three times in 18 verses. After every one of the spiritual practices, he makes this statement, your father who sees in secret. Uh, if you give in secret, verse four, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. If you pray in secret, verse 6, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you fast in secret, verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So I want to finish with something that I don't hear a ton of conversation about in the church. I haven't heard a lot of sermons about, and that is this truth about anticipating rewards for our good works. Now, for some reason, my mind gets tripped up with this tension of seeking a reward or anticipating a reward for good works. But Jesus clearly said, if you do your good works with the kingdom mindset, you will be rewarded. But the tension in my mind is on one hand, we learned from Matthew chapter six this morning that we're not supposed to seek to be noticed when we do good. But on the other hand, when I do good, I should anticipate that God is gonna reward my good works. I like how one Bible commentator put this. He said, show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. And over and over, the scriptures declare that we should actually anticipate reward 
when we do good. I just want to bring up a few examples from the scriptures about this idea of, of reward for good works. In, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God tells Abraham, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Again, a promise of reward. And then the wisdom writer speaks of reward for doing justice in the world. Notice Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Rescue those who being led away to death hold back those, hold back those staggering together towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not the one who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not the one who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done. And then the words of Jesus all over the gospels. Jesus talks about reward for faithful service. Uh, one example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus said, the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Over and over, I mean, we could put a lot of scriptures on about this call to reward for faithfulness, this call to reward for the good work that we do. But the final one I want to mention is probably the, one of the most well-known, and that's Paul in Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10. He talks about this law of sowing and reaping. Again, he says, Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Then he says this, let's not become weary in doing good. That might be just a word for somebody this morning. Just listening, don't be weary in doing good. For what reason, he says? For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We will reap. We will be rewarded. And then he finishes by saying, therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. I love that. Just be a person who does good to all people. Then he says, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So brothers and sisters, it is both good and right and pleasing for us to anticipate and seek rewards from the Lord for the good that we do in his name. We just need to think about it differently. It's not like this idea of like, okay, like I'm going down to the gospel rescue mission and I'm going to feed the hungry and expect to get paid for it. That would like totally defile that act of charity. No, but actually think about the reward in this way. When I go down to feed the hungry, the hungry are filled, they are loved, they are seen, and God smiles and is pleased. That's the reward that we're talking about. In the very act of doing good, we receive a reward by the act itself and the results of doing good for people in Jesus' name. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he actually wrote a book called Weight of Glory. And in it, he actually deals with this idea, this tension that we find ourselves in is of, should I be working for reward? Is it actually good and right for me to work for reward? Well, Lewis puts it this way uh, in his British way. He says, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. Therefore, there are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with things that you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. So he gives an example. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we would call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman 
for the sake of her money. You call that a gold digger, right? Um, but marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not a mercenary for desiring marriage because of love. And then he says, similarly, we might say that a silver cup is not a very suitable reward for a schoolboy who works hard, whereas a scholarship at the university would be. And then he finishes his, his argument this way about expecting reward. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. That said, when we do good in secret, whether it's giving or praying or fasting, this morning we're talking about giving. When we give to the poor, when we are equitable toward the poor, when we are generous toward the poor, the act of doing that good is its own reward and consummation. As Father sees and is pleased, as the poor are helped, the kingdom of God breaks in, and there's some light that comes into the, whole, the soul of every person who lives this way. Three quick takeaways that I just want to leave us with as we go into a time of communion and prayer and worship. Three quick takeaways and thoughts from this passage. Number one, Jesus is reminding us that giving to the poor is our righteous duty. So if you ever wondered if you should give to the poor, the answer is yes. It is the call of every follower of Jesus who has an abundance to be generous with those who don't have enough. If you have more than enough, that more than enough is for people's lack. Number two, Jesus is asking us to check our motives. When we do our acts of generosity, am I doing what I'm doing to be noticed by men or for the pleasure of God alone? And then third and final takeaway, Jesus promises us that Father rewards our good works. So brothers and sisters, let's listen to Jesus. Whatever you do to be seen by people won't be rewarded in the heavenly realms. You'll have your reward here. But whatever you do, in the secret for the Father's pleasure alone will be rewarded eternally and you're gonna love it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey family, as we come into this moment, this is really a family moment, especially thinking about the words of Jesus for us this morning, about generosity and the goodness of God for those, the reward of God for those who do in secret their acts of good works. But when we think about generosity, it's almost impossible for us to not think about the generosity of the father who gave us his son. So on this generosity Sunday, let's remember probably one of the most foundational passages of scripture in John chapter three, verse 16. If you know no other verses, you might know this one, but it simply says, for God so loved the world that he gave generosity is part of God's love for us. I've heard somebody say that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. God so loved us that he gave us Jesus. And so as we think about our own acts of generosity and the mindset and the attitude, as we give away our life, we give away mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. We give financially. Let's remember that it started with Jesus. It started with the father. He set the pace for generosity. So as we hold the bread and the cup, remember this is to also remind us of how generous and good God is. So let's pray as we eat and drink. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus who gave body and blood, who gave life, who gave all that we might receive the goodness that we needed to inherit life. 
So as we take, we also want to give. We want to be generous based on the way that you've been generous to us. So this morning, we just sit back and receive your goodness. Receive your son, Jesus. Receive broken body and shed blood. Receive all that was given by the Father through Jesus. And then, Father, as we eat and drink together, I pray that we then might, because we've been given to so richly, give away our lives, give away everything that we have for the good of the other because we've been given so much. Thank you, Jesus. We receive the body and the blood. We receive this cup and this bread. In Jesus' name, let's eat together and drink together.